Now remain standing for our gospel lesson and our sermon text. Pay close attention because this is the gospel of God. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us today to understand your word and to know you better through it. To know how to keep your commandments faithfully. To know how to trust in you with saving faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Not all faith is saving faith. Some people's faith in Jesus is not saving faith in Jesus. Some people who believe in Jesus are on their way to hell. Not all faith in Jesus is based on a vital personal relationship with Jesus. Not all faith in Jesus is leads to eternal life. If what I said just shocked you more than the text that I read shocked you, then you may not be hearing what the text is saying in John 2, 23 to 25. These three verses at the end of John 3 are jarring. This passage rattles our cage, it unsettles us, or at least it should. These three verses tell us that Jesus knows every thought of every heart. He knows everything about everyone who has ever lived. That's unsettling enough, right? But even more unsettling is that When Jesus looks at the hearts of believers, people that the Bible calls believers, he sees that some believers are not truly believers. And so he does not entrust himself to them. Jesus sees that some people's faith in Jesus is not saving faith in Jesus. Some believers are headed for Eternal destruction, hell, unless they repent and entrust themselves to Jesus with a living, active, obedient, saving faith. This passage deals with a problem that existed in the first century and that still exists in the church today. Some believers don't believe. 
not all believers are true believers. Many believe in Jesus only at certain times or under certain circumstances, under certain conditions. They only believe in Jesus maybe when life is good, when Jesus is doing amazing and wonderful things that they can see and understand. Verse 23 refers to believers who only believed in Jesus because they saw him doing signs that appealed to their worldly mindset. Their faith came alive only because they saw Jesus doing triumphant and powerful signs. After all, they wanted a Messiah who would lead with power, might. These signs gave them hope that Jesus was that mighty political leader that they were waiting for, that they had put their hope in. But you see, their thinking was worldly rather than spiritual. Their faith was too worldly minded to be of any heavenly good. Jesus' brothers provide an example of this kind of faith that John is talking about at the end of John Two in verse 23 in particular, Jesus' brothers only believed in Jesus because of his signs. They were great. They're going to ride on his coattails into glory. John 7 records a fascinating interaction between Jesus and his half-brothers. These were Mary and Joseph's children. Their other children who were born after Jesus, his younger siblings, I invite you to turn over to John 7 and follow along with me and pay attention to how this passage paints Jesus' brothers in a worldly light. Their faith is worldly. John 7, 2 says that the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. Jesus came to Jerusalem during these feasts. In our passage, it's Passover. Here, it's tabernacles. Verse 3 says that the brothers of our Lord said to him, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. Verse 4, for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly or publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then verse 5 makes a somewhat shocking statement. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Did you catch that? How, how does that follow from verses 3 and 4? John's saying that what the brothers told Jesus in verses 3 and 4 is evidence that they do not truly believe in Jesus. Now, if you were to read verses 3 and 4 on their own and stop and not read verse 5, you, you might come away with the opposite conclusion. It appears that they do believe in Jesus. They're impressed by his mighty works. And they're eager for him to get his message out. Don't bottle this thing up, Jesus. Get it out there. This is great news. But John says that their faith is not true faith. It's worldly faith, specifically. Their desire for Jesus to show off his signs in Jerusalem proves that they don't have saving faith. Notice what the brothers say at the end of verse 4. Show yourself to the world. Now, the The word world is a pregnant term in John's gospel. The brothers are of the world. 
And they want Jesus to show himself to the world. But what do we know about the world in John's gospel? In John, the world is precisely that which cannot receive Jesus without ceasing to be the world. When members of the world accept Jesus with genuine faith, they stop being members of the world. See, Jesus came to expose all the evil deeds of the world, and the world hates that. The world rejects that. It doesn't accept it. Worldly people can't truly receive Jesus and stay worldly. The brothers of Jesus thought this was possible because they were of the world. They didn't realize that when you truly entrust yourself to Jesus, he transforms you and separates you from the world in a sense so that you are no longer of it, in it, but not of it. That's what happens when there's true faith. Some of you are trying to keep one foot in the world. You believe Jesus. You, you stand up for Jesus at work or on Facebook. You know who he is and how great he is. But you are still of the world. Your schedule is of the world. Your entertainment is of the world. Your life goals are of the world. Your speech is of the world. Look at how Jesus responds to his brothers in verses 6 and 7. Then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. In other words, they have no sense of God's timing. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. Jesus' brothers belong to the world. Their faith in Jesus is a worldly faith. The world can't hate you, Jesus says, because you belong to the world. The world doesn't hate its own. It loves its own. That's what Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In John 7, Jesus' brothers belong to the world. Their faith is of this world, not from above. They had not truly entrusted themselves to Jesus, and Jesus had not entrusted himself to them. And this is an example of what is going on in our passage back at the end of John 2. And you can turn back to John 2 if you want. Verse 23 is talking about people who believed in Jesus when they saw signs. Signs that in, in some way appealed to their worldliness. And then verse 24 says that Jesus did not entrust himself to these people. The New King James Version says that Jesus did not commit himself to them. The word that John uses there in verse 24 is the verb that means to believe, to trust. It's the Greek word pistuo. It means to put one's faith in. It's, it's, what the, it's the word that the New Testament uses all the time to talk about faith, believing. It's the same word that John uses up in verse 23 when he says, 
many believed in his name when they saw the signs. So it's the same exact word. Maybe a better way to translate these two verses so that we see that it's the same word being used is to translate verse 23 this way. Many trusted in his name when they saw the signs. And so verse 24 would say, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Same word. Verse 23, they trusted in him. Verse 24, he did not entrust himself to them. This is disturbing. It's unsettling. Jesus does not entrust himself to all believers. Why not? Because not all believers truly believe in him. Not all who believe in Jesus genuinely entrust themselves to Jesus. I'm going to ask you to flip again a few more pa- a few pages to John 8 so I can show you an example of this. Look at John chapter 8 and verse 30. It says, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. John 8.30, as Jesus spoke these words, many believed in him. Same word, believed, trusted in him. What does the rest of the chapter say about these believers? Verse 31, then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, same word, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. In other words, there are false disciples and true disciples. True disciples of Jesus are those who abide or remain, live in his word. Verse 32, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered, Jesus, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Skip down to verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen With your father. Verse 44. You are of your father the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. So these believers in Jesus ultimately had no place in them for Jesus' word. Their father was actually the devil, not God the father. The gospels tell us about Thousands of people, literally thousands of people who followed Jesus and believed in him, saw his signs, ate the bread and the fish that he multiplied, only to forsake him before it was over with. Because there was no room in their hearts for Christ's word. They did not remain in the word. They decided to go back to the world and to remain there. And the same phenomenon happens today. A lot of believers don't have room in them for Jesus and his word. Their faith is a worldly faith because they belong to the world. They can't entrust themselves to Jesus because they're still hanging on with both hands to the pleasures 
into the thinking of this world. What about you? This passage does invite us to to do a diagnostic of our own hearts. Is there any place in you for Christ's word? Does the word of Christ dwell in you richly or does the world dwell in you richly? Do you desire the things of the world, status that you can get in the world, the acceptance, the glory of the world more than the things of the Lord and the glory of the Lord in your standing before God in Christ? Have you truly entrusted yourself to Jesus? Is Jesus' Father your Father? Do you have saving faith in Jesus? Living, obedient, active, saving faith in Jesus. Perhaps you are willing to embrace the name of Jesus. But are you willing to embrace the cross of Jesus? And then to take up your own. The point here is not that saving faith is perfect faith. It's not perfectly obedient faith. That's not the point at all. The point is that saving faith is oriented toward Jesus more than it is oriented to self. Damning faith is self-focused, self-serving. We make the standards. We decide Saving faith is Christ-centered. Damning faith is bent in on itself. It sees Jesus as, as another really great layer on one's life in this world. Another layer of one's life in this world. Saving faith is centered on Jesus. It sees one's life as an offering to God. Damning faith causes one to live for himself or herself. Saving faith causes one to become a living sacrifice of worship to God. Jesus knows whether you have saving faith or damning faith. That's the implication of verses 24 and 25. He knows whether or not your faith in Jesus is true. How does he know this? As verses 24 and 25 indicate, he knows everything about everyone without help from anyone. He knows everything about everyone without help from anyone. Jesus knows everything about everyone's heart, and he doesn't need a testimony of anyone, of any man, to validate his perfect knowledge. His knowledge of you is as thorough as it is perfect. It's as deep as it is wide. Jesus doesn't lack any knowledge of you whatsoever. His knowledge of your heart is comprehensive and exhaustive in every direction. He knows all the secrets that you've never told anyone. He knows all of your hidden motives for doing what you do and and includes the motives that are hidden even from your yourself. Your heart can deceive you, and it often does, but it can't deceive Jesus. 
He sees right through the deception. He knows everything about your inner life all the time. This means that there is a person in your life who truly knows everything about you. There's one person in your life, Jesus, who who sees right through all the way to the other side and everything in between. Your masks and your facades that keep everyone else from seeing the real you have zero effect on Jesus. He sees all for exactly what it is. So you're utterly laid bare before him. You're totally known by him. Jesus knows you infinitely better than anyone else knows you, and he knows you infinitely better than you know yourself. Think about that for a minute. Let that sink in. Consider how great his love for you is. If he knows everything about you, including all the deepest and darkest secrets, and he's still willing to die for you. He's willing to save you and entrust himself to you and live with you forever. It's an amazing thing that the person who knows you best also loves you the most and has done the most for you. His love for you runs as deep as his knowledge of you runs. Now I want to back up a little bit and show you a connection between the end of John 2 and the beginning of John 3. This will help us understand our passage today. It will also help us understand our passage for next week, John 3. Now, remember that the chapter divisions in the Bible are not inspired. They're artificial. They're helpful. They help us navigate the scriptures. But when John wrote his gospel, for example, he did not divide it up into chapters and verses. Those were added much later by the church as a help. So when you start reading the story of Nicodemus at the beginning of John 3, you shouldn't think of it as the beginning of a new section or a brand new topic. John 3 is actually a continuation of the same idea. The story of Nicodemus in chapter 3 is an example of what John is talking about in the last three verses of chapter 2. Let me show you what I mean. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. The second half of verse 23 says, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he did. The key word there is signs. Tuck that away in your mind. Now look down at verse 25, the last verse of chapter 2. It says, And Jesus had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Okay, the key word here is man. Man is used twice in verse 25. Now look at the first verse of verse of chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Okay, you see the, So let me read Verse 25 and verse 1 of chapter 3 together without the break. And Jesus had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Okay, he's given us an example. Now look, look at verse 2, chapter 3. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these what? 
signs that you do unless God is with him. So you see what's going on here. Nicodemus's faith in Jesus was based on the signs that Jesus was doing. But Nicodemus is an example of what John is talking about in verse 23. Many believed because of signs that appealed to worldly mindsets. Listen again to Nicodemus' confession, though, in, in verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. You are a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But Jesus knew what was in this man, Nicodemus, because Jesus knows what is in every man. Nicodemus did not have saving faith at this point. He did later, but not here. At this point, Nicodemus's faith was from below not from above. It was a worldly faith, not a faith that is from the Holy Spirit. It was a self-focused faith, not a faith that flows from a renovated, renewed, regenerated heart. Nicodemus had not fully entrusted himself to Jesus, and Jesus had not entrusted himself to Nicodemus. Nicodemus still needed to be born from above by water and the Holy Spirit. He did not have any spiritual life. He was spiritually dead. Nicodemus, Nicodemus's interest in Jesus were worldly interests. He wasn't interested in, in following Jesus, obeying Jesus with a living faith. He was interested in adding Jesus as another layer onto his life. He wasn't willing to give himself wholly over to Jesus. He was willing to work Jesus into his life, his plan, his theology, his idea for Israel, his hopes, his faith. But he was not willing to give his life wholly to Jesus. He was only willing to believe Jesus insofar as Jesus was good for him. Remember, Jesus thought, or Nicodemus thought Jesus was great. He believed in him. He confessed Jesus. But he had not yet entrusted himself, heart, soul, mind, and strength to Jesus. Nicodemus was not unlike a lot of professing Christians today. They want the power and the glory and the spiritual excitement that come with that comes with being associated with Jesus, but without the cross, without the core of the gospel, they want Jesus to be the great and mighty King of the world, but not of their lives. They want Jesus to rule the world, but not their hearts. And so what about you? Does your faith come and go as quickly as the miracles do, as quickly as the blessings do, as quickly as the favors do? Is your faith strong only when God is showing you favor and blessing your life and shielding you from from the major problems? What happens when the discomfort and the grief and the various trials set in? Does your faith shrivel up? 
when the glory and the power and the might are not there, or at least not there in, according to worldly standards, what happens to your belief in Jesus at that point? Do you love God or do you love the things that God can potentially give you? Have you entrusted yourself to Jesus? Or are you hoping that this Christianity thing will pay off in the end? One way to know that your faith is true is that it doesn't get weaker when the miracles go away. It doesn't become anemic when the trials become intense. Sign-based faith is self-centered. Sign-based faith does not save. Sign-based faith does not transform because it's not looking to Jesus above all. And you need to kill whatever sign-based faith is in you that's still lingering in you. You want to cultivate in your heart saving faith. Saving faith is Jesus-based, Jesus-based and cross-shaped. Saving faith is faith that is centered on, built on Jesus and the cross and nothing else. The death and the resurrection of our Lord, the cross of Christ, is the one and the only sign that you should base your faith on, put your faith in. When the Jews asked Jesus for a sign, remember what he told them. There's only one sign that matters. There's only one sign I'm really going to give you. The sign of Jonah. His death and his resurrection on the third day. John 2.18, we looked at last week. Jesus, They asked Jesus, what, what sign do you show us? And you remember his answer. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's the sign that you can believe in. That you can put your hope in. That you can entrust yourself to. That's the sign they should have put their faith in. The cross of Jesus Christ is the sign that saves. It's the sign that you must put your faith in. Jesus knew what was in man. Jesus still knows what is in man. This means that he knew exactly how and when he would suffer and die at the the hands of the Jews and the Romans. He chose when and where and how he would die. Chose the time, chose the location, and all the details in between. He could have avoided it, since he knows everything about everyone. He can predict everyone's behavior perfectly. But he did not avoid the cross. He took it up for you. He entrusted himself to his father perfectly. That's what it means to entrust yourself to God. To go all the way to the cross. To do whatever God puts before you and to do it faithfully with endurance all the way to the end. He did not avoid his cross. He took it up for you. And your proper response to this is to consider Jesus 
and his cross as the most glorious sign of all. Your response to what Jesus did for you on his cross is to consider him and that cross as the most glorious sign of all. Better than everything else. More important than all the other things that the world has to offer. Your proper response is to entrust yourself to him. Body and soul. Entrust yourself to Jesus and his cross. And then, if your faith is true, it will lead you into a life of denying yourself and taking up your cross every day. That's what true faith looks like. Let's ask God to help us to trust him faithfully. Father, we need your spirit to do his mighty work in our hearts so that we can believe in you and entrust ourselves to you truly so that we can be true disciples all the way to the end with endurance and faithfulness. We want to do this. Help us to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.